When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abuel Samet from Chicago today. Are you actually in Chicago? Did you, did you, you I was going to say, did you land, but you took the train. So, That's right. Uh, uh, I, I am in Chicago. I took the train from Ann Arbor. Uh, and uh, this time of year, it is absolutely the best way to get uh, back and forth between Michigan and Chicago. Um, because uh, as, as so often happens uh, around the time of the Chicago Auto Show, there was uh, quite a bit of snow overnight and this morning, and uh, apparently a lot of flights uh, between Detroit and Chicago this morning were canceled and delayed, and uh, the train just barreled on through. Although whether it'll be able to do that on Friday afternoon when I'm heading back uh, remains to be seen because we're supposed to get uh, Chicago is supposed to get about seven to eleven inches of snow on Friday, and about four to seven in southeast Michigan, and and it could be probably actually quite a bit higher in western Michigan as I'm going home because they get the lake effect snows. So we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what time I end up, actually end up getting home Friday night in, from Chicago. Yeah, it may turn into your own personal snow piercer. Uh, yeah, could be. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time it's happened. I know uh, I know there there have been times in the past when the the train has actually gotten stuck or you know been delayed significantly because of too much snow on the tracks. So we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah. But well, for for now, I'm here and and uh, and I'm I'm ready and you know we'll uh, talk a little bit about what's what's going to be going on here over the next couple of days and what's been going on in recent days. Yeah, and so speaking of that, uh, we've been driving some things and uh, you know while we've gotten all the Chrysler love lately, apparently. I mean, you had the, the yeah, I've been on an FCA too. binge lately. Yeah, um, I again this week you had the uh, Durango GT all wheel drive. Yeah, um, it's the first time I've had a chance. I've, I've driven the Durango briefly uh, in the past at the the Chrysler Proving Grounds or the Fiat Chrysler Proving Grounds uh, when they have their their annual What's New event. But this is the first time, um, actually, with the current since the current the current generation Durango uh, debuted in what about 2012 or so that I've got to spend a, a good bit, good bit of quality time with it. And no, uh, I think it's I think it's older actually. I think it was 2011. Was it 11 or 12? It might have been 11. I, I don't know. I just I remember driving it when I was working in downtown Worcester, and that was at least 2010. So. Uh, well, what, whatever. I mean, the, the last time I spent a significant amount of time with a Durango was the previous generation model, uh, right after they introduced the hybrid version, the two mode hybrid version in uh, right. in the summer of 2008. Um, and, uh, that, that whole, not only was the hybrid canceled, but the entire vehicle was canceled just a few months later, uh, when, uh, when, uh, Chrysler was, 
going rapidly sinking into the tank uh, following the financial meltdown that fall. Uh, and I think it was probably about November, December, you know, they suddenly announced that, yeah, we're canceling the Durango and the Chrysler Aspen and closing this plant forever. And and uh, maybe someday we'll 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 be back. And, and a few, few years later, they were um, with actually quite a good vehicle. Yeah, the new Durango or the current Durango, because it's not new anymore, but it's yeah. amazing how it's very good. It's related to the Grand Cherokee. It's essentially uh, a three row Grand Cherokee. So all you people who want the Wagoneer, this this is the Wagoneer. Um, so it has all the charms of the the Grand Cherokee. And just like what they're doing with Jeep with with the Grand Cherokee, they, they keep doing that with the Durango. There's sort of this constant yearly uh, tweaking. It goes on. It's always a little bit different, a little bit improved. Uh, they've done a very good job about taking a, a, a basic vehicle that, that is good, but uh, it's aging um, and just keeping it, it, it fresh or giving them you know, Less giving stale. things to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I mean, it, it, it's, well, it's keeping, a good car. Yeah. So. yeah it's, it, and actually, it, it, I, I shouldn't say it. I mean, it, it's actually not stale. It's actually quite, as you said, it's, it's quite a good SUV. And if, you know, if what you're in the market for, is a three-row SUV that has real room for uh, for seven, you know, for up to seven people. Um, you know, the Durango is an excellent choice. Um, you know, I mean, most most of the other options, you know, in a vehicle this size, you know, you've got you could go for like the Chevy Tahoe, um, you know, which the the short the shorter you know the Tahoe um, you know is the shorter wheelbase version. If you if you really needed uh, room for seven. You'd probably want to go for the um, suburban, which is longer. But both of those, you know, have the the rear seats are actually really not very roomy, and because of the uh, the way the suspension is set up, there uh, the floor in the back is actually surprisingly high, and so you end up, you know, when you sit in the third row, it, it's okay for kids, for little kids, but for adults, you end up, you know, sitting with your knees up in the air about shoulder height. Um, and it's just <laughs> not very comfortable and not very easy to get in and out. Um, the Durango um, is also a, a solid rear axle um, mm -mm. vehicle like the, no. uh, like the no, Tahoe, it's, but, it, but it's a it's, unibody. Uh, right. It's also, no, it's, it's independent rear axle. Is it independent? Oh, it is. I've no. been under my Jeep on a lift. It's independent. <laughs> on the, on the, on the rear? I don't yep. think so. Are you sure about that? I am positive. I know the front is, uh, is independent. Hold on. Let's see. Um, while we play test rear multi-link. No, it's multi-link rear suspension, coil spring, twin tube shocks. Okay, you're right. Uh, um, I, I was wrong. Sometimes so, I'm right. Uh, yeah. But no, I mean that's a good point. Um, the independent rear suspension in vehicles like this give you a better third row. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. Um, the other sort of like you were talking about the suburban and Tahoe. I would say, you know, the Expedition. Um, and Navigator, uh, those are solid rear axle. Like no, those are not. No, those, those are, are independent. also IRS. Damn it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we each got one right this time. So yeah, yeah. The, the Suburban and Tahoe are solid rear axles. They're the only ones, they're the ones that are left of the domestics with solid rear axles. Um, and the, uh, the Expedition Navigator and I guess the, the Durango, um, uh, are all independent. And, you know, what that means, you know, from, a you know, from the perspective of, of the customer or the passenger, um, because, you know, if when you have an independent rear suspension, the differential doesn't have, you know, it's solidly mounted to the vehicle and it doesn't have to move up and down with a, with a beam axle, 
you know, you've got to leave room underneath the body for the whole axle to move up and down, including the differential. So that means that you've got to contour the, the rear, rear part of the floor pan to give that clearance. When the, if the differential doesn't have to move and only the wheels at the corners are moving, you can, ha you can make the floor a lot lower. And so you can have um, a lot more comfortable seating position in the third row. And it, it does make a huge difference. And, you know, I, I did climb back into the third row of the Durango and it was quite comfortable back there. Uh, and even had, you know, had decent head and leg room back there. Even uh, for me, you know, I'm, I'm about five foot 10. Um, and you know, I could, I could easily ride back there for a while. I probably wouldn't want to take a, a long road trip in the third Yeah, You row. might not want to go like say Ann Arbor to Chicago. Probably not. <laughs> uh, but it, I mean, it wouldn't be a killer to do that. Um, no, I mean, yeah. actually it's probably roomier than flying. Uh, yeah, actually you're probably right. Uh, at least in coach class anyway. But, uh, yeah, the, the train, the train is definitely a much better option for that. Uh, but anyway, back to the, the Durango, you know, so the having the independent rear suspension, you know, gives you a combination of both a usable third row and um, better overall ride quality. Uh, you know, and it's it's still, you know, it, uh, you know, it, it handles really well. And because it's basically the same suspension setup as the as the Grand Cherokee, you know that it's also going to have decent um, some decent off road capability. Although, you know, if what you if you if you really need to go off roading, you would probably want to go with a shorter vehicle like the Grand Cherokee than this thing. But it would it, it'll still do pretty do pretty decently in those kinds of conditions. Yeah, the thing I like about the Durango is that it's it's just it drives with that. Um, careful attention to detail that the, the Grand Cherokee exhibits as well. It just it feels good to drive. And a lot of cars have the spec sheet that that matches up and a lower price than than, than say the, the Grand Cherokee. The Durango is actually priced quite well uh, within its its competitive set. Um, but they don't they don't drive well. They're kind of a chore to be in. Like all, everything is there. They just suck to drive. <laughs> Where the Durango and the Grand Cherokee don't. They're good to drive, um, and that makes a big difference to me. And the interior is nice. Um, you, you know, it's just this. It's a solid vehicle for the class, no matter how old it is. Uh, I am interested in what makes it a GT because that's a slightly newer trim, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's that's a new option. I think for the 2018 model year, it might have, it might have launched in 2017. I can't remember, uh, but yeah, basically uh, to turn a Durango into a GT, you add some pretty cool looking. Um, 20 inch wheels to it um, and a hood that looks like it, you know, that, that looks pretty much like uh, any of the, the Hellcat models like the Challenger or, or Charger Hellcat. So you've got a forward facing hood scoop and a couple of vents on either side of it. Um, so it, it looks like it's a lot faster than it actually is um, because the Durango GT actually comes with the Pentastar V6, which nothing wrong with that. But it's not quite a Hellcat, so you get kind of the. It's kind of like uh, BMW M Sport or uh, you know the the AMG appearance package on a Mercedes. You know, so you get the stuff that looks like it goes fast, but it doesn't really do anything for your performance. Right. It's the show. It's all the all show no go kind of thing, which is yeah. which is fine. You know but what? Like it, like I said, you good. know, I mean the you know the Pentastar. You know, it's a it's a nice it's a pretty good powerful engine. You know, it's what uh, about three almost three hundred horsepower. Uh, in this setup, 
Um, yeah, 293 horsepower, 290 or 260 foot pounds of torque. So it's it's got plenty. And with the eight speed automatic, um, it does, you know, it does fine. You know, there, I had no real complaints about the performance. You know, let's put it this way. You're not going to race this thing against uh, a BMW X5M, you know, or or an <laughs> AMG uh, GLE. But um, it'll it'll do fine, you know, for for most commuters, you know, that need to haul six other people around with them. And you still have plenty of cargo space uh, in the back behind the third row as well. Uh, so, you know, it's if you need a third row, a three row SUV, uh, you know, and you you also you know want to be able to do some towing as well. Uh, because, you know, this because it's a rear wheel drive vehicle, it's got some decent tow capability. Uh, you know, unlike, uh, say, you know, say a Chevy Traverse. I mean, Traverse is fine. I think it's about thirty five hundred pound towing capacity or, or four thousand pounds. That's it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The Durango with the six will do, I think, sixty five hundred. And then. If you want, I think it goes up to nine thousand with the Hemi. Right. Um, so yeah, it's you know it, it's not you know our uh, see the the rear wheel drive V six Durango is sixty two hundred, and um, the five point seven liter Hemi is uh, seventy two hundred. Ah, uh, see, pounds. I thought it went up more than that. See, I'm I'm just throwing out numbers and making stuff up. But but you can get <laughs> you can get a six point four liter V eight with all wheel drive that'll give you eighty seven hundred pounds of towing. Wait, you can get the 6.4 liter? Uh, yeah, in the, the SRT. Oh. There's, so you I can get the Durango think. SRT, which is, you know, that actually does go fast. That's right. And that that's actually new for uh, 2018 is the SRT. And I would never think to tell with the SRT, but I mean, yeah, sure. Why not? Well, yeah, absolutely. What could, what could go wrong? It makes a great tow vehicle. It's quick. And yeah, it's and nice it's got interior. got a lot of capacity. Yeah. You could um, You could do a lot worse. Absolutely. So the thing that I didn't like about the Durango is the rearward visibility because it's a little extra long uh, and it has a smallish window in the hatch. You get kind of a limited view to the back. Uh, yeah, but I mean, that's a, that's a problem with any three row SUV, though. Yeah, I mean, that's I, I've true. yet to see you know anything that long is going to have visibility issues out the back, uh, even if the windows are large. You know, you, you push the window that far back behind you. That's going to happen. Uh, so, you know, that I mean, that, and that's where the beauty of, uh, you know, having the rear backup cameras is, is great. And, you know, things like blind spot information. Yeah. No, and, and that's honestly, like, that's about one of the only things I can really carp about with, with that vehicle in particular. Um, you know, I've, I've had my say about the, the Uconnect screen um, in its current iteration. Uh, you know, overall, that's... They, they haven't replaced it because I don't think they have anything that's as good. Uh, and we were talking about this um, just amongst ourselves. FCA seems like they're sort of stuck in this, this place where they're trying to get alpha sort of going here in the U.S. again. And they're kicking along with the, the Dodge Chrysler Ram lineups that have, have been around for a while. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's any real suitable replacement for these vehicles that have been you know, really doing a great job for them for quite a while now. Yeah. I mean, my, my guess is that, you know, probably in the next year or so, we'll probably st see them start to do uh, a significant visual refresh on these vehicles. So that, you know, they'll get some visual updates, you know, and, you know, probably some tweaks under the skin, but there, there really isn't a whole lot 
you know, to that really needs improvement in terms of, you know, the driving dynamics or anything like that about these vehicles. So I, I would expect to see visual updates and also probably some powertrain updates. You know, the the both the Grand Cherokee and the Durango will probably get the um, the updated uh, Panastar and Hemi that just debuted on the 2019 Ram 1500. So we'll probably see them get the 48 volt mild hybrid or mild hybrid systems. Uh, on those two vehicles, that'll give them a few extra miles per gallon, uh, a little bit of extra torque. Um, and then, you know, that, that'll probably be it for the next few years on those vehicles. Yeah. Well, I'll be interested to see um, what they do. Cause I think, you know, at, at its core, it's, it's, it, they're good. Um, so your options are, you know, refine what you've got and don't make major changes. Or uh, I think really the biggest thing they, they could do is figure out how to get some weight out of, um, especially the Durango and, and Grand Cherokee. Not that they're super heavy, but you know, with the tight, the, the fuel economy and emissions regulations worldwide, um, it's, it's probably less of an issue for the, the Durango because I think that's a U.S. market only. But Jeep wants to sell Jeeps everywhere, right? So, you know, well, the the Durango GT, um, you know, all wheel drive is a five thousand pound vehicle. So yeah, that yeah. is that is an issue. Um, so you know, ideally they would take some weight out of it and. You know, I mean, that's that's something they could do. You know, if they made some structural changes to it, they could they could probably shave a couple hundred pounds out of it, uh, you know, without completely revamping the whole thing. Right. And that's the balance that they've got to figure out is how much do we invest in this? Um, you know, do we just do we change to more high strength steel or ultra high strength steel? And, and does, when does that effort sort of tip you over into really we should be looking at engineering a new platform? this point um because you, you bump up against the just the sort of life cycle and i don't know any of the actual reasons or uh <laughs> limits so that's that's it for my knowledge but um yeah it would be interesting to see how they manage to make it you know to tweak it and yet also just you know keep it as good as it is and, and make it better without a full redesign or where's that full redesign what does it look like uh we've, we've heard some sort of inklings of stuff uh about new platforms and I'm, I'm sure it'll happen at some point but I've, I've been watching for the last couple of years it seems quiet over there yeah well you know given given the, especially the sales volumes of the Grand Cherokee it wouldn't be surprising you know to see them you know uh, actually do a completely new Grand Cherokee um, and then you know in conjunction with that you know this this longer version of uh, you know with the Durango um you know, because that that's a you know the Grand Cherokee is a vehicle that you know sells what you know about three hundred thousand a year. Oh, it sells um, a lot. Yeah, it's very yeah, popular. You know, and so it you know it would it would make sense for them to invest in that vehicle. You know, to make that investment, um, that's probably still at least a couple of years off before we see that vehicle. Um, and again, you know, it'll probably share a lot of componentry with this current one. You know, I mean, so things like the suspension and and you know a lot of the underpinnings will probably stay the same, but we'll we'll see probably some structural changes and, and design changes, you know, design updates uh, to that vehicle and and consequently to the Durango as well, assuming they decide to keep that around. Well, uh, we, we can just do the normal car writer thing, like time will tell. <laughs> 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 or not no i mean we, we honestly might, we, we might never see it who knows yeah they've they've got uh durango is sort of like a bonus for them they've got the grand cherokee that is just you know 
don't script a good thing, guys. Like, it sells a lot. People love it. Um, they keep making it, you know, different every year and a half or so so that it, it continues to have that freshness about it. And the Durango sort of rides those coattails, and, and it's it's not a bad thing. And it's I'm glad that it's here because I like it a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's it's a great option. Um, so I, I guess, like, if there's one... When, why don't you pick like your favorite and your least favorite, and then we'll we'll move on. Thing about the Durango. Uh, favorite, I, I would say just you know, in ter- as, as a three row SUV, you know, the combination of both um, the roominess and capability, you know, um, you know, because it's it's better, you know, in terms of its uh, passenger carrying capability than a lot of the three row SUVs that are out there, and you know, combines that with with really strong towing capabilities, even on the V six. Okay. And now least favorite. Uh, least favorite. Um, just the fact that it's so big. Uh, I mean, I person for, for me personally, I mean, you know, for a lot of customers, a big SUV like that, that that's what they want or, or and or need. Um, for me, I personally don't have a use for such a large vehicle. So I would never buy such a vehicle, but I'm not going to tell other people that if right. that's what they want. You know, well, actually, I probably would tell them that if they asked me what to buy. I would say don't don't buy such a large vehicle, but you know if you decide you must have one, you know go for it. Yeah, well, and you own a Miata, so you're completely biased. Well, well, yeah, and I mean you and I both know that. I mean we often, I'm I'm sure you also, you know, often get asked, you know, I I'm looking for a new vehicle. What should I buy? You know, and when people ask that question, they inevitably already know in their mind what it is they want, and they're just looking for uh, confirmation of that. Um, you know, and for for me, I always start by asking them half a dozen questions, trying to gauge what it is that that what it is that they need, and I will tell right. them what they probably should buy, and then I know that and in, almost inevitably they will go off and buy whatever it was that they wanted in the first place, regardless right. of what I say. So, so Casey, if you're listening, do not buy the Wrangler. <laughs> <laughs> but the, yeah, usually that's where I start. It's like, okay, well, what, what are you thinking of, and why, and. You know, just sort of offering a couple of, of sort of guidance points. Because honestly, like if if you suggest something that they hadn't really thought of and, you know, they might try it, but they, it might be just too weird for them. And then if they buy it and they hate it or it breaks down a lot of you are the one in, sort of on the hook for that. Then like, I'm not taking advice from you anymore. Right. Well, um, fortunately, they never take our advice anyway, so it doesn't yeah. really matter. That's, that's it, just a theoretical thing. Yeah. It's such an emotional uh, purchase anyway. Uh, it's interesting though that you call it large because I'm thinking like the, we mentioned the Tahoe and the, the Yukon and, and the Suburban. It's smaller than those physical footprint wise. It's still big. Uh, it's it's, it's about big. the size of a Tahoe. Is it really that? Yeah. Big? It feels tighter inside. So maybe it's less space efficient. I, I think I think it's a, maybe a little bit narrower than a Tahoe, uh, but it's it. about as long. Um, okay. It's certainly smaller than a Suburban. Yeah. Yeah, but well, but, I, mean, but I think the third row is is actually more usable than the suburban. Yeah, well, I mean, the suburban is they they call it suburban because it's the size of a development. Like, right, and you know, I mean, the, the suburban you know has has got about sixteen more feet behind the third row for cargo. Yeah. Um, so, or at least it feels <laughs> that way. Yeah, and and that's the I think the the yeah when you're buying these sort of three rows and they're the like manageably sized three rows that you have that trade off like do you use the third row or do you use the cargo you got to pick often um they're not bad but you know you you do have to choose between whether you're going to put a lot of stuff in it or uh, fill it but you know if if you actually do plan to use the third row you know then 
stay away from things like the the Lexus RXL, you know, which oh. the, the third row in that. I'm sorry. I mean, the, the RX is fine in general, you know, no, as a not. two row utility, but <laughs> no, don't bother not. with the the third row version because, I mean, the third row is, is a joke. And there are so many of, you know, these midsize utilities that they put a third row in there. It, it's kind of like, you know, companies that put a second row in their sports cars, you know, put, you know, the, the plus two right. in their sports cars. That's really nothing more than a plus two. And, you know, the, you know, it's, it's really only big enough for little kids. Um, and, but the thing is you don't actually want to try and reach back there to strap little kids into those seats. Well, yeah, and, uh, so, and the problem you know, with, just don't with little kids, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of problems with little kids, but the problem with little kids <laughs> is, is the, the kids' seats are so huge, they don't often fit in, in anyway. Yeah, right. So what I, did you drive? So I had a, a Volkswagen Beetle Turbo, and I was, I was thinking about this. It strikes me that the new Beetle has roughly had about the same kind of run in the U.S., as the original Beetle did. You know, when you consider that the original Beetle really got popular around 55, and it it was pretty out of date by 75, so that's 20 years. Um, the new Beetle... Well, you, you, could, you could argue that it was kind of out of date in 55, but... Well, it, it was, but <laughs> it, 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 it sort of had that spike of popularity between, say, 58 and 72, 74, mm-hmm. and it, it really started to, to tail down. Uh, and I think, you know, really one of the things that helped the Beetle last that long was the oil embargo in 74. Um, but the the new Beetle came out in 97. 20 years later, it, it's been through a generation. It doesn't really look all that appreciably different. Uh, and, and there's just, you know, I was thinking, like, is anybody going to miss this? Because we're, we're also hearing rumors that the Beetle is going to be killed. It's, it's like it's they're not going to extend the model once this one runs its course. And I'm kind of okay with that. Like, I really hotly anticipated the new Beetle coming in 97, and then I was a little bit let down. And I really want to lament the loss of this one as much as I anticipated it coming to market. But I, I don't think I do. <laughs> kind of. Like, well, you know, I, shrug. I mean, I'm. While I personally, you know, might not necessarily, you know, want to own or drive a Beetle myself, I, I think it's good that the world has cars like the Beetle because, you know, you don't want all cars to be the same. That's you know, true. And, and, you know, I mean, mechanically, it's a Golf, you know, well, and so it's, it's always it's always been the same as, as any other Golf to drive, right. you know, but it, you know, you've got it's got a unique flair to it. But the, the issue, so this Beetle Turbo, I for whatever reason... I hate the way it drives. I, really? I don't. Yeah, it. Um, and the whole time I was driving, I was just like, man, I just wish this was a GTI. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. I think part of the reason why I don't like it is uh, the, the it had a DSG, which I find really boring. And um, it, it, it does weird stuff. It, it'll almost lunge off the line a little bit or in slow, you know, stop and go traffic. It, it's really like jerky. You know, back and back and forth. Not the transmission engagement; that's smooth, but the the throttle gives you like a little bit of aggressive sort of pop, probably to get it in gear, so it's not riding the clutch. Uh, it just, it, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem. It, it, for whatever reason, it just didn't. It, it was not enjoyable to drive. <laughs> the steering was a little numb. 
the, the traction was not great from the tires. It just like it, it drove mediocre. And I was like, eh, it's a turbo. Like I could understand if this was just a sort of like the base model Beetle. This is a Beetle Turbo. It should drive as well as a GTI, and I don't feel that it did. So, uh, you know, there's that, and it's it's got that low roof and tight back seat. Uh, you know, this one wasn't quite as, as nicely equipped, so it had uh, like cloth interior with crappy seats, and I, I don't know. For whatever reason, I'm just cranky about it. Yeah, and you know what's odd is you know it's a it's a two liter four cylinder turbo, um, but it's rated at only 174 horsepower and 184 foot pounds of torque. So it's you know the the GTI I think now currently is what about 211. I was gonna say it's at least it's a little bit over 200. Um, yeah, you know, but by current standards, you know, a two liter turbo at 174 horsepower is actually not very much. No, that's uh, like 100 horsepower down on the the sort of the Vanguard. Yeah, I mean, you know, the 174 horsepower is kind of the power level that you are getting out of a lot of naturally aspirated two-liter engines now. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, or, or just slightly more than that, you know. So it's it seems kind of odd that they would bother, you know, with a turbo on this, you know, at, the, at such a low power level. I mean, I, I can see, you know, where they might, might want to have it, you know, be less powerful than uh, the GTI, but... Um, you know, why, you know, if, if it's going to be at this power level, you know, why, why even bother with the turbo? Why not just do a naturally aspirated two liter or use, use the smaller, like use the 1.4 liter turbo. Right. That's uh, what I was going to say. If you want to make it the turbo, use that small turbo and, and you pick up some fuel economy. Right. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it just, I, I don't know. It, I like, I like the Beetle. It's distinctive, um, especially this, this latest A5 based beetle I, I think it you know it has nice detail it, it is it's crisp it's clean it, it it looks great if you like the way the beetle looks and, and I, I mean it's hard to not appreciate the way the beetle looks uh but it, it's just yeah I, I don't know um the whole time i drove it i was just you know thinking like you get a little extra space with the golf uh and the, the gti just drives that much better in price wise that's still a, a really affordable car. I, I can't make the case for the Beetle other than it looks like a Beetle. And I think all of the people who wanted that have kind of gotten that out of their system. You know, it's been 20 years. And, and I looked back at the last, uh, I looked back, I think, at the last three years of, of sales data. So between, so 2018, 17, sales were off 50% from the year before. That year's sales they were down 25% from the year before. Go back to 2015, same thing, down 22%. So, like, the sales have just been dropping off a cliff, you know? Like, you're getting to percentages of percentages, and, and it does, it, it's not making a case for itself. I think Volkswagen only sells about 15,000 of these in the U.S. every year. So it's getting to be kind of a niche seller, and I can see at a certain point they don't really want to put much effort into it, and, that, and that's the impression I get out of it is that they haven't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a, you know, they're, they're just kind of letting it die a slow death, you know, just kind of wander off into the sunset. Yeah. And that's, I mean, sure, some cars don't need updates. And I, I, I don't know. Um, the, uh, the DSG, I think, is probably one of the reasons why I was left a little flat. I would have had a lot more fun if it were a manual. Um, and uh, the flat bottom steering wheel, 
I have now determined this is a terrible thing in a road car. You <laughs> should you should not make a flat bottom steering wheel because it makes it really weird to juggle in drive just normal driving. You know, you've got to figure out where to put your hands. Yeah, I mean, um, unless you know, unless you've got a, a performance car with really high side bolsters. Um, and really quick steering, so you don't actually have to turn it more than ninety degrees anytime. Uh, the yeah, I mean, it, it does. It it really is more of a a visual statement than anything actually functional. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's about all the smack I want to talk about the Beetle. Um, it's it's a clever design. I I hope they do something else with it. I hope they keep it. But uh, if it dies, I I'm not gonna. I'll, I'll shrug. <laughs> <laughs> It wouldn't be the end of the world. No. no. I mean, honestly, how can you love it when it does, or how can you miss it when it doesn't go away? You know? That's true. We've that is true. Beetle forever. Uh, it even overlapped with the original one in some markets. So there's that. Uh, anyway, let's let's move on. All right. I've got stuff to talk about. Uh, so you are in Chicago. Do we want to talk about Chicago or do we want to talk about other stuff first? Um, why don't we get Chicago out of the way? Um, so, uh, Always a good by, by, the, by the time you guys hear this, you know, <laughs> as it stands right now, it's, it's Wednesday afternoon. The uh, Chicago show starts tomorrow morning and uh, midnight tonight, uh, which will be sometime before this gets published. Um, Ford will be taking the taking the wraps off the um, the refreshed, um, somewhat sort of kind of new uh, Transit Connect wagon, 2019 Transit Connect wagon. Uh, which I have often personally told people, you know, that were in the in the market for a lifestyle vehicle that perhaps didn't want something as large as what or, or that didn't want a minivan at all, for that matter, um, and wanted something more practical, more useful than a sport utility vehicle or a crossover that they should really consider the Transit Connect wagon. Um, and, I, you know, I've largely been ignored, as, as is so often the case. But, uh, you know, I, I will continue to say it. Um, and in fact, a friend of ours uh, just recently purchased a, a Transit Connect wagon um, because she does have an active lifestyle. You know, she goes canoeing and kayaking and stuff like that. And, and you know, the, the Transit Connect is actually a really nice size. Uh, you know, it's not too big, but you can drop, uh, you know, the, all the back seats down to get a flat load floor and everything. And so, you know, we're currently in the second gen Transit Connect wagon that debuted in what? 2013, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, something like that. And, uh, you know, it's it's actually, you know, for what it is, it's quite a good vehicle. Uh, you know, Ford. Well, it's you know, it's um, focus-based now, right? Um, sort of. I mean, sort it's of. got some focus bits in the front end. Uh, it does have a beam axle at the back, uh, you know. To, As it should, because uh, utility vehicles, yes. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you want the whole idea is to have a flat, you know, a low load floor in the back. And, you know, one of the, you know, if, if you're not going off-roading, you know, if you want a vehicle that offers utility, um, you know, offers a huge amount of cargo carrying capacity um, and, you know, is practical to use, you want a low, a low load floor, you know, so it makes it easy to get in and out. Um, and it, it was fascinating last week when I went to the, uh, the preview of this with Ford, you know, listening to the Ford marketing folks talking about this. You know, we so often hear, you know, automotive marketers talking about, you know, how, or, or actually marketers in general talk about how we're going to appeal more to millennials, you know, get get millennials into our vehicles. And with the Transit Connect, it was the exact opposite. You know, they know who, who their market is for this thing. You know, people between 50 and 68 years old. Um, you know, and that's great. 
you know, it's, you know, empty nesters, you know, that are still active and, you know, uh, you know, want to want a vehicle that fits their lifestyle. And the, the Transit Connect is, is great for that. You know, and it's there's not a whole lot that's changed on this one. Um, it's uh, it's got a new front fascia with, uh, you know, the latest iteration of the, the Ford hexagonal grille, you know, similar to what we see on the Fusion and Focus and a bunch of other cars, um, which is fine. You know, the, the European market Transit Connect already got this update last year uh, and now it's coming over here. Um and it gets a new center stack with uh, a, an upright tablet-style touchscreen. Oh, uh, no. You, know, <laughs> <laughs> you don't like that? I don't like tablets. I don't like touchscreens. Well, um, I, I don't like touchscreens either. But I think it is – I mean, it, if you're going to have a screen in the middle there, I think it is I, – I, I actually do appreciate you know that stand-up tablet style because it gets it up closer to your line of sight. So when you do have to look at it, you're not looking as far away from the road uh, to glance at it. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's better, you know, it's, it's, it, I think it's from, from the visual perspective, I think it's better. Uh, you know, I agree. I, I don't like touchscreens either, but you know, what are you going to do? I mean, that, that's what everybody's yeah. going to do. So um, is it, is it portrait, um, aspect or is it? No, it's uh, landscape. Smaller? Okay. So it's, it's actually, it's not that tall then it's just, it's no, there. no, it's just, it's just, you know, the, the kind of like what you see in most Mazdas and, and a lot of other, increasingly other cars now, the Elantra GT, where it, rather than being embedded in the center stack, it stands up vertically kind of on yeah. top of it. Um, so that's, you know, that that's what I'm talking about, you know, where it's, it's, it's not so far down the stack. So you, when you glance over at it, you, you're not looking as you, you're still looking at the road as well. Um, so that, from that perspective, it, it's, it's an improvement. Uh, and it's got sync three and, uh, Ford Pass Connect, which is uh, their telematic system, uh, but um, one of the things that's that's really interesting, you know, they they've uh, updated the powertrain lineup for this year. So up until now, the the current gen Transit Connect has used has had the the old uh, 2.5 liter normally aspirated four as the base engine and the 1.6 liter EcoBoost as the up level engine, and the 2.5 is still available. Uh, but only for fleet buyers um, because they're, it's available with their gaseous prep package. So if you want to do a, a CNG uh, or propane conversion on it, um, that 2.5 uh, has the is prepped for that. You know, it comes with all the fittings and everything, so you can hook up a CNG tank. And you know, a lot of a lot of customers, a lot of fleet customers use these as taxis, um, and th that's the the main market for the CNG convert CNG or propane conversions for taxi and delivery service. Um, so that's, that's the, that's the one engine option. Then the base engine is, um, the two liter normally aspirated four cylinder that's in the focus now. Uh, and then the, the other option that's going to be available now is a new 1.5 liter turbo diesel, um, uh, which is a new engine that Ford launched in Europe last year. Uh, it's already available in the transit connect in Europe, as well as in the echo sport, um, and they're they're bringing it to the the Transit Connect for North America, which is an interesting choice, because you know Transit Connect sells about forty thousand units a year, and they only expect you know to get you know maybe single digits to low double digits penetration for the diesel, so you know maybe probably no more than about ten percent. So you're looking about you know maybe thirty five hundred to four thousand units a year with this diesel engine. Um, they are projecting that it's going to get over 30 miles per gallon highway with the diesel. 
uh, which is great. But um, the it, it's not uh, you know, it's not that high a volume, and given you know the additional cost to certify a diesel in the U.S. market now, um, I can't imagine that this is going to be the only vehicle that we're going to see that engine in, uh, which is, is an interesting choice from Ford. So, yeah, well, it's it's curious to see them going towards diesel because uh, they're they're also um, just today release details and i know it's not necessarily coming here but the the ranger raptor diesel uh so it seems like ford has gone a little bit all in uh or, or a little bit more in on diesel than than it might seem that they they had been especially given how hybrid had been shaking out and then how everybody's electrifying right uh and the problems that diesel has had you know given volkswagen's uh <laughs> most recent uh, go around with it <laughs> yes uh, with did, testing with monkeys yeah i mean do, do these diesels require anything special of the the owner too or are they they're using after treatment and they're, they're like CO2? everything else they're they're using uh after treatment so you've got urea injection so you know you'll have to top up the the urea tank every ten thousand miles or so uh and you know it's got uh uh, particulate filter so it's it's using all the the usual stuff that we're finding on other modern diesels uh you know ford you know says you know quite adamantly that they don't they've never used any defeat devices so you know we'll we'll see um but uh, yeah i mean they, they launched the three liter v6 diesel on the f-150 last month at, at uh, the auto show detroit auto show now they're adding it to this one adding this new one five liter uh to the transit connect and you know like i said given the you know, now that they're certifying that engine for the U.S. market, I can't imagine that it'll be much longer before we see it showing up in some other models as well. Probably the Echo Sport would be a good place to start um, because, you know, right now, I think the only engine available in there is the one liter uh, three cylinder EcoBoost. Uh, so you know, they'll probably add that one uh, to the Echo Sport and then uh, perhaps in the uh, in the new Focus as well when that uh, arrives next year. Well, that's curious. I mean, good for them. Yeah, I like diesel. I that's, do. I do too. They're they're pleasant to drive. Um, are they going to call it? The, this is the their diesels in Europe are the, the Duratorque, right? Uh, well, this one, this the new one is the Echo Blue. Uh, Echo so you got, Blue. So you got Echo Boost for the gas turbos. Oh, wait, it's EcoBoost in the Echo Sport. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, don't even get me started on that nonsense. Yeah, Echo Sport, Eco Boost. Uh, this is what was it? Is it Eco Blue or Echo? I can't remember. E C L B L U E, whatever. However you want to pronounce that. Why? Why? <laughs> Why don't they just call it Diesel? Because <laughs> uh, you can't, you can't patent or you can't trademark that. That's true. Like, and this is this is the funniest thing. Like, sometimes I'll sit in a meeting and and one of my uh, coworkers likes to to name things. Like, uh, this this thing needs a name. This this thing that we're doing. It needs needs a name. This project needs a name. It's like, it doesn't need a name. <laughs> just just go. I don't don't waste any time naming it. Let's just build well, it. Well, at least at least Ford didn't use a name that they already have on another existing product, uh, like like GM did with the autonomous version of the Bolt, uh, which they have named uh, the Cruise AV. Um, despite the fact that they already have a Chevrolet Cruise, which is a completely different vehicle and it's pronounced the same but spelled differently. So. Uh Yes, marketers. Gotta love them. Uh, yeah. 
Um, moving Speaking on. Speaking of marketers, <laughs> uh, probably the probably the greatest marketer of our time, if not well, necessarily well, I, the greatest uh, auto executive. Yes, but it, and I think the first thing we should do is preface this whole story by uh, reporting came out, uh, financial reporting came out for them uh, today. And they're losing what three? Oh, did it come out already? I haven't seen yeah. it yet. It's like it's down three bucks a share or something for Tesla. Um, How much did they lose? Is the question. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, the the point I think you were trying to make is that there's this big PR stunt, and it was actually more than that. It was it was SpaceX. They launched the the Falcon Heavy uh, and uh, recovered its side boosters. I think they missed its center. Center boost that missed the drone ship, um, and they, they launched Elon's Roadster into space, and it was all very successful and, and impressive. It was, it was a great show, and you know, especially watching the the two side boosters come down and land simultaneously on the adjacent pads. That was at, pretty bad in Florida. Yeah, I mean that <laughs> that that was very cool to watch those two boosters come down and land flawlessly. The the center the center booster, uh, as you mentioned, uh, didn't quite uh, fare so well because uh, apparently I guess um, when they're when they're bringing the boosters down, they have nine nine engines, nine rocket engines, rocket motors on each of these uh, Falcon Nine boosters. Hence the the name Falcon Nine. Um, and uh, typically when they're when they're slowing the, the booster down to land, they fire three of those and apparently only one relit uh, for that mm. firing. And so it didn't slow it down enough and it ended up uh, missing its trajectory by a couple of hundred feet. Uh, and the booster, uh, instead of hitting the drone ship in the Atlantic, uh, hit the water at about 300 miles an hour. And um, the shrapnel, as it made that impact, also impact, you know, caused damage to the drone ship as well. So uh, that one didn't do so well, but but they did get uh, Elon's Roadster up into uh, into orbit, and it's on its way. Um, apparently, that also overshot slightly, uh, and uh, instead of going into an elliptical orbit that will have it alternating back and forth between Earth and Mars orbit, um, it's now on its way out towards the asteroid belt uh, in between Mars and Jupiter. Um, so we'll see how long that thing holds up out there. Yeah, so it's just gonna get pummeled. Yeah, um, but for for what it's worth, though, the uh, um, that Tesla Roadster is not the first EV into space. Um, that actually happened almost fifty years ago uh, when uh, NASA put uh, on three consecutive Apollo flights put uh, uh, lunar rovers onto the surface of the moon, which were driven around by the astronauts up there. Um, and those uh, electric lunar rovers were actually built by uh, a little General company Motors. you might have heard of called General Motors. General Motors. They yeah. did awesome stuff. And I think somebody involved with that project at some point said, I have no doubt if you go up there with fresh batteries and put them in there, <laughs> they'll fire right up and you'll be able to drive them around. Yep. And I think that's that's probably true. And the tires were developed by uh, Goodyear for those, I believe, because they're they're like um, a spiral. It's like a spring that you lay on its side and, and then wrap it around the hub. And I think there's mesh um, because you can't have air. So right. Can, yeah. So it's a, it's a non pneumatic tire. It was really cool. Those those lunar rovers are, are neat. Um, I so given all the spectacle, it was really cool to see. But still, Tesla's not making any profits. 
<laughs> so that's that's fine. Yeah, and we'll uh, actually, we're we're probably as we record this, I think we're still. Uh, let's see, it's about two eleven, but uh, we're still about an hour and a, an hour or so away from them releasing their their Q four numbers. Okay, uh, it must have been numbers. projections or something. Yeah, uh, but it's it's. I think it's pretty reasonable to assume um, that they're going to lose money and 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 a lot of it, and also have a significant amount of negative cash flow since they fell substantially short of their uh, delivery projections for the Model Three. Um, and uh, as, as near as we can tell from the reports we've heard, um, they're still doing a lot of hand building and. Uh, and actually, even what, what they are building uh, is apparently not that good. Uh, did you happen to see the um, the video uh, that Autoline put out last week, uh, John From McElroy? No, but I, I actually I have it in my queue to to watch the. We'll, um, the we'll include it in the in the show notes. But uh, John McElroy, the host of of Autoline, uh, did a little walk around uh, with Sandy Monroe, the uh, CEO of Monroe and Associates, which is a, a prominent um, firm that does uh, teardowns. So they get hired by by a lot of companies to do uh, competitive teardowns. So they they will purchase vehicles from different manufacturers and tear them down and analyze everything about them. And, and John and, and Sandy did a little walk around of a Model 3 last week that they're in the process of tearing down. And um, there's a lot of stuff about, uh, about that. The, the quality is, um, shall we say, not up to current standards. And in fact, uh, Sandy Monroe described it as being a roughly equivalent to a, a early 90s Kia, which uh, was not a very good car, not, not uh, compared no. to what Kia builds today. That's early '90s Kia was like when they were just learning to. Uh... Yeah, they, let's let's put it this way: it's it's not really the same company that goes under the Kia brand today. They were those were pretty terrible cars, and I know you know having having driven them back in those days, uh, they were they were not good cars. And some of the, <laughs> some of the things that you get that you see in this video are are pretty, you know, for cars that they're selling. You know, I mean, the the ones that they're building today are you know high-end trim levels you know the the long distance battery and um a lot of equipment and they're um you know these are cars that are selling for 55 to sixty thousand dollars and you know the kinds of things that they're showing on these you know issues that we were seeing on ten thousand dollar cars 20 years ago yeah that's not that's not good and that's the biggest issue i have with tesla we we had a, a company function uh last week and somebody was asking me you know what I thought of the Model 3, and, and I said, you know, screw those guys. <laughs> it's like, if you want an electric car, you go buy a Bolt, you go buy a Leaf, you go buy a used Leaf, like, and, and even those cars, you know, it's strange that Nissan's really not trying all that hard to sell the Leafs. They're they're not in stock in, in a lot of places. They're, they're special order. Well, they're, I mean, they're, they're still, I mean, they just started production last month, uh, so they're still, they're still ramping up um, and getting those out to dealers. Um, but I, I think okay. in in the next in the next few weeks, you probably will st- see some more significant marketing for the Leaf, uh, because you know one of the things that they're really pushing this year is the uh, you know the value proposition, uh, because it starts you know at twenty nine thousand dollars before uh, any tax incentives, and uh, I think you, we're gonna we're gonna be seeing Nissan pushing the Leaf quite a bit harder in the coming months. Yeah, and and you know my my assessment of Tesla to everyone is, is probably the same as yours. Uh, you know, they've been great at pushing the rest of the industry. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, the, be, cars like the leaf and the bolt wouldn't exist today if it weren't for Tesla. Yeah. And I love the, 
the ambition. I love the 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 sort of the, the thinking behind a lot of the stuff, and the, we want to change things. Great, um, but they're not as good as they need to be, especially the Model Three. They're just not good at building a car, like in the in the basic sense of the you know bending the metal and bolting it together. That needs to be better. The the software and the electric propulsion and all of that stuff is good. It's really good. <laughs> but the but you got you got to you got to get the into? fundamentals of actually manufacturing and delivering to customers yeah. and supporting yeah, and customers. They're, they're never going to turn a profit until they can sort of get out of their own heads and understand that like, we really do need to build a car and understand how to build a car like GM or like Ford in the sense that. You know, doing it or like Kia in 20, 2018. Right. Set the price level and say, we want to sell the car for this. What does that mean? How does how does that get built? Because building them by hand in small batches, that's about the most labor intensive, least efficient way to do it. You know, it's almost like I want to mail Elon Musk my copy of the machine that changed the world. <laughs> <laughs> Just be like you should check out the Toyota production system as it was in like 1987 or, or, you know, in the Fremont uh, assembly plant in uh, 2009, that's uh, right. Right, right before was the, Toyota closed right. that plant and sold it off to Tesla. It was, it was nummy. And it was like, that's where GM learned how to not build shitty small cars. I, I mean, not build quite as, it, no, honestly, the cars that came out of nummy were just, they were just as good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's new me, by the way. Nummy, nummy. See, I can't pronounce a damn thing. <laughs> Echo Sport. <laughs> um, where's you see? This is where we need Chris Shunk to save Rodeo. Uh, but yeah, they Tesla. They will be great if they get out of their own way and understand that maybe we should hire some some auto people and really get these production lines working. Like they have a production problem. They don't have a design and engineering problem. Um, at, at least. Their production problem is bigger than their just well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, problem. you know, I think uh, I think they have design and engineering problems to the degree that um, you know they need to design and engineer their vehicles to, to be able to be produced uh, because you know there, there's a big difference between designing something that is you know a good solid car and designing a good solid car that you can actually mass manufacture. Um, and you know, I mean, this is one of the things that Elon talked a lot about, you know, in the the run up to the the launch of the Model Three was that you know they learned from the Model S and and more more particularly the Model X, you know, things that they need to do and and not do, you know, in order to and they designed they they claim that they designed the Model Three to be able to be easier to build, um, which is great, except that. By all accounts, that's not actually happening yet. Doesn't um, seem like they're having an easy time building them. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I, I don't I don't know. Um, you know, I haven't been in the Fremont plant. Uh, you know, I've only heard various reports from from a variety of people that um, have been there or, you know, have, have talked to people. Who work, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of um, second and third hand stuff. Um, but by all accounts, you know, they're still having issues, not just in Fremont, but also in the Gigafactory, uh, where they build the battery packs and the, uh, the drive units. Uh, and, uh, from, from what I understand, you know, the Gigafactory, they're still hand building modules, the battery modules, um, by, and, and that's, you know, that's a big, uh, a big bottleneck for them. They need Bob Lutz. 
Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, you know, I have, I have great admiration for, for Bob. Uh, but I mean, you know, he was, he was, he was a product guy, but, um, you know, perhaps not necessarily, not necessarily in, in many respects, he was more like Elon, um, than, you know, what, what they need is, um, they need John Kraftcheck. I was just going to say, then they need Kraftcheck, which is yeah, because I, I mean, Kraftcheck actually started his career at Numi, you know, and early on in his career, he he wrote a book on lean manufacturing. Yes, the machine that changed the world. Oh, that, that's, okay, I couldn't remember if that was his 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 book, but well, he, I don't know if he was at Numi at that point or if he was at MIT. Um, uh, I think it was after. I think it was when he was at MIT after he was at Numi. Oh, okay, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, they they, they need somebody like him. Uh, more than they need another uh, person who is uh, out there, you know, as a promoter. They don't need another promoter. You know, they don't need somebody who's good at, at sound bites and and uh, and quotes. They need somebody uh, who's an operations person uh, to to really, you know, crack down on the manufacturing side of things. That's that's true. I they, what they what they need is an automotive version of Tim Cook. Yeah. Okay. I mean that 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 works. But Either way, the the, pro- the problem is it's unlikely that anyone like that would ever go to work for Elon Musk because Elon is not the kind of person who seems like he's willing to step back and let someone else take that level of control of the day to day operations. Well, he, and I, I I think that that that's sort of what you're what you're seeing, and it, and it's not it's not unique. To this business, it's, no, gotta, it's happened in many businesses, yeah, and and other car companies. Yeah, it's like Edison syndrome. Yeah. Um, all right, so we've 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 had our weekly bashing round on uh, on Tesla. Do we do we need to say anything more about it other than like, uh, shut the car? Into no, space we'll, and... we'll we'll come we'll come back to Tesla next week once we've heard the financial results and had a had a chance to pour over the numbers a little bit. I, I am kind of annoyed though that they they launched they basically they littered they they blasted a car out into space and if we get everybody blasting their crap out into space like that's not okay that's true but um, on, on the on the other hand it um based on a story i read today um sounds like it will uh disintegrate actually disintegrate fairly fairly soon and it won't actually be on a billion year journey uh because the plastics and, and everything that make up the body um apparently the the carbon carbon bonds in those materials are um uh, very susceptible to the interstellar radiation, and uh, those materials will break down pretty rapidly, um, probably within the next twelve months or so. So a lot of the a lot of that vehicle will just completely disintegrate into its base elements anyway. Wow. Well, all right. <laughs> that's, so that's, so that's what you cool. call biodegradable. I mean, so I've driven cars that have done that biodegradable? too. <laughs> yeah, usually it takes a few more years and some road salt to make that happen. Yeah. Um, all right. So the, and the last thing we wanted to touch on was uh, th- I saw some of these, the, the autonomous disengagement metrics um, that were uh, released from the, from the, was the California testing or, or what? Yeah. Well, so, so uh, when they put in some regulations for 
public road testing of autonomous vehicles in California a few years back. You know, when when back when Waymo or what was then the Google self-driving car project first started testing on public roads around 2011, 2012, uh, you know, they went to the California DMV and said, hey, we want to test these on public roads, you know, test out this technology. Um, and, you know, at that time, they got a waiver from the state saying, OK, you can do some limited testing with this. And eventually the state, you know, um, took some time and they put together some specific rules and a permitting process. And there's now more than 50 companies that have permits for test for public road testing of autonomous vehicles in California. Um, and one of the, the stipulations uh, with that, when you get this permit, you agree that, you know, every year you're going to submit a report, you know, because they were looking for some way to measure the safety and, and progress of these vehicles. And so they came up with this mechanism. They said, you know, how many how, basically you have to report how many times the autonomous system disengages and hands control back to a human driver. Uh, and, you know, and why did it do that? So. Every company that's testing in California has to submit these reports every year. And, you know, if you go back and look at the, the prior year's reports, um, you can see that particularly for, for Waymo, which has been testing longer than anyone, uh, you know, there's been a steady downward, uh, you know, steady decline in the number of dis or the frequency of disengagements. Not so much the number of disengagements, but, you know, how many miles you go between disengagements on average. Uh, and, you know, that's that's all well and good, except that, you know, when these report, you know, when the 2017 reports were published last week, I started getting a lot of calls from various uh, people in the media, you know, for a comment on this. And, you know, and I started looking at this, you know, and I, and I looked at these last year as well, when it kind of first, you know, really came to prominence when, when Waymo made a big deal of their, their low numbers. Uh, and one of the, the issue, the, the big issue with this is uh, there's not really, you know, the, the, what constitutes a disengagement or, or why, why the, the system was disengaged and why the human driver had to take over is kind of vague. Um, and there's, it's open to a lot of interpretation by different companies. So that's, that's one element of this. Um, you know, so there's no common standard really on, you know, what makes the autonomous system give up. And then there's also the fact that, you know, there's a lot of companies that aren't testing in California, you know, um, contrary to the belief of a lot of people in Silicon Valley, uh, Silicon Valley is not the center of the universe. What? Um, yeah, believe it or not. Um, and so, you next, know, the, next you're going to tell me that the world does not revolve around me. <laughs> uh, Dan, we need to have a little chat. <laughs> Uh, you know, and there there are a lot of companies involved in developing these systems that are doing testing in a lot of different locations, including companies that are also testing in California, like General Motors and Waymo. Uh, you know, Waymo Waymo is actually probably doing more more testing outside of California now than they are in California, uh, at least on public roads. You know, they're doing a lot of work in the Phoenix area. They've got vehicles in Austin, uh, Kirkland, Washington, uh, soon uh, starting in Atlanta, and so all of this basically um, means that what we're seeing out of California, you know, uh, most of the companies that submitted reports have, uh, aside from GM, GM, you know, Waymo and GM by far and away have accumulated the most miles of testing in California. Uh, but 
uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, these little startups, even a lot of big companies, you know, companies like Volkswagen and Mercedes-Benz and, and Nissan that have accumulated very few miles in California because they're doing most of their testing in other places. You know, Nissan's doing most of their testing in Japan. Uh, Daimler is doing most of their testing in Germany. Um, you know, BMW is doing most of their testing in Germany and, and other locations. Even Aptiv, you know, formerly Delphi, you know, they have... Uh, a facility in Silicon Valley, but they do most of their development on their autonomous systems in Pittsburgh and Boston. Um, now in Las Vegas, they do some in, in Michigan. They do uh, a bunch in Europe. So, you know, what you see from uh, these California reports is just a tiny snapshot of a statistic that is not even particularly relevant. You know, even if everybody was testing in California, doing all their public road testing there, it still wouldn't be a, a particularly statistically significant um, metric for measuring the, you know, how good these systems are. Well, what it does show to me, though, is that um, the biggest problem with autonomous drive, uh, driving is human drivers. Um, <laughs> or, or, or actually the media that's reporting on them. I mean, that, that's true. It, it seemed like the highest percentage was just unexpected things where the system just winds up in this place where it doesn't know how to solve it. So it hands control back to the human driver to be like, no, you, you solve this. Right. Um, well, you know, and, and, you know, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is, you know, the, a lot of this testing is going on in some widely divergent places. You know, so, for example, GM is doing a lot of it, most of it's California testing within the city of San Francisco, which is, you know, a particularly challenging environment from a traffic standpoint and, and pedestrians and everything else. You know, whereas um, Waymo is doing, I mean, they're testing in San Francisco, but they're also doing a lot of testing in, in other locations, you know, um, where the conditions are quite different. And, you know, if you're testing an autonomous vehicle in a suburban area, for example, and, you know, you're the safety driver and you see it starting to do you know, starting to diverge maybe from what you would expect it to do. Um, and there's nobody else around you. There's no pedestrians around you. There's no other cars around you. I mean, I know this as an engineer, having been in a similar situation, developing electronic control systems that were not, nowhere near the, the sophistication of the autonomous systems today. But still, when you're, depending on where you are, if, if you're in a place where um, the consequences of the system going wrong are lower, you know, where there's less likelihood that you're going to hit something, then, you know, you want to find out what it's going to do. Is the system going to be able, is it going to recover? So you might let it go longer and then it might, you know, might recover. Whereas if you're in a dense urban environment, you're, you're going to be more likely to take, you know, when you see it starting to diverge rather than letting it keep going to see if it, if it detects something there and, and recovers and goes back to what it's supposed to be doing, um, you're going to be more likely to take over control. So again, you know that that number of disengagements in and of itself does not is not necessarily indicative of anything. So it's just it's something to talk about. It's yeah, it's a it's a, it's a meaningless number that uh, that's good for creating you know for generating some headlines, but doesn't really have any actual value to it. Okay, that sounds like a lot of the stuff that people talk about especially the news media <laughs> yeah um and, and especially on a, a subject that has sort of broad interest but um really requires the understanding of a, a more in, you know engaged uh audience you know like 
certainly you're going to see the, the news reports that pick up on this for you know your your evening news or whatever. They'll spend I don't know 15 seconds talking about it or, or you know 20 seconds, and then it gives you very very shallow coverage on it. Where with everything else with autonomous driving, it sounds like really you have to dig in, you have to look at the depth of of what the numbers are telling you. So I, I guess what if anything can we glean from this other than like the systems sometimes disengage or sometimes are disengaged by the the the, <laughs> the human overlords uh, because of a variety of reasons. Like that's about the best we can do, right? There's, that's yeah. That's really literally possible. about all you can say about it. That occasionally humans have to take over, um, and you know the reasons why can you know can be hugely divergent. You know, it doesn't you know the number itself has almost zero meaning. Okay. All right. Meaningless numbers. Excellent. Sounds like uh, algebra <laughs> class. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Well, I think we've we've done a pretty good job about uh, chewing up an hour here. And we the, we beat uh, these topics podcast. to death. I think um, we have. So I think uh, on the on the next episode, hopefully we will be if we can get all our ducks in a row. Hopefully we'll have Casey List back, and hopefully uh, one of these days uh, we'll get uh, Alex uh, Nunez lined up as well. But, I think uh, he's dodging us. I don't know. Uh, it, that could be. Uh, that's 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 entirely possible. But uh, definitely, Casey's going to be coming back to talk about the uh, the Alfa Romeo Stelvio. Um, so uh, he and I can compare notes on, on what we thought of the Stelvio. All right. Well, until then, uh, carry on and let us know all about Chicago next week as well. All right. <laughs> we'll talk to you all next week. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.